Hi, and welcome to the Marketing with a Book podcast by uh, Indie Books International, headquartered out of uh, Southern California. My name is Mark LeBlanc. I happen to live in Edina, uh, Minnesota, a suburb of the Twin Cities, and uh, serve as the uh, chairman of the board uh, of Indie Books. I'm sitting in today for Henry, who normally uh, handles our interviews and just excited to be with you. We've got a great guest in Chris Hodges uh, today, but just a moment about Indie Books International. You know, there's a lot of opportunities to self-publish or publish a book. And, you know, we have a little different philosophy at Indie Books and it sounds kind of odd, but it's less about the book and it's more about what the book will lead to. We want your book to be a gateway tool. We, of course, we want you to sell more books, but we specifically want to design and structure and create uh, the right book for you that will lead to more keynote speeches or more training uh, assignments, consulting engagements, and coaching clients. That's the key. We know that too many people have self-published crappy books. And even worse is somebody who self-publishes a good book with the wrong title or the wrong subtitle or the wrong or poorly structured table of contents. And that's our superpower uh, here at Indie Books uh, International. Every week we interview uh, one of our authors or another author that we've come to know uh, and respect and what we do first off is we just sort of go around and with the authors that are here, have them uh, share uh, their name and where they're from and a little bit about uh, their previous book, their current book project or their next uh, book project. And I'm gonna go first to Larry and then to Steve. All right, hi everybody. My name is Larry Haas. I, my background here is Palos Verdes, California, but I actually, am coming to you from Redondo Beach, California, which is about 10 miles away. My book, published in 2017, I'll call it the first book, is SOS to ROI. And it's about how to go from distress SOS to success. And sometimes distress is a problem that needs to be solved. Sometimes it's an opportunity and a big wave we need to catch. Either way, the book helps solve it. My next book is going to be about how to be a technology power presenter because a lot of engineers don't know how to speak very well, and I'm pretty darn good at that. So thanks very much. Off to you, Mark. Thank you, Larry. And we are looking forward to your interview uh, coming up as well. Uh, next, uh, Steve. Yeah, thank you. Uh, I'm Steve Swavely. I'm in Hendersonville, North Carolina. And the title, the working title of my book is Optimal Team Performance. And the, the subtitle is The Power of Neuropsychology to Optimize Your Leadership. I'm a, I'm a, I'm a clinical neuropsychologist turned leadership expert. Steve, you must be very smart. <laughs> well, my wife doesn't think so. But she doesn't. I can fool most other people. <laughs> uh, she may not admit it, but I'm sure she does. Um, and my name is Mark LeBlanc, as I shared with you earlier. And my uh, current book project 
is bringing in the business that I am co-authoring with Henry and uh, David uh, Goldman. Um, next up, uh, we're gonna introduce uh, Chris. Uh, Devin, um, can you put a little pin light on me? There we go. Uh, we have with us today, Chris uh, Hodges, the author of the book, Noble Automation Now. Uh, Chris, it's nice to have you with us. Um, Chris, uh, Christopher Hodges is the author of Noble Automation Now, is an executive consultant and speaker. For over 25 years as a GE corporate executive and consulting partner at Accenture and Deloitte, He's helped Fortune 500 companies understand, apply, and lead with technology. He works with and trains business leaders on how to increase profits and build great teams. His clients learn to successfully embrace intelligent automation while inspiring their top talent to perform at their best each and every day. Chris, nice to have you with us. Mark, it's a pleasure. Thank you very much. I'm really happy to be here. You know, I recently ordered a copy of your book. I'm looking forward to hearing some of the answers uh, that I've seen in the book about some of the stories. But first I wanna uh, ask, can you give us a little bit of a window uh, into your world? Take as much time as you need or want, but um, how did this book come to be and why now? Uh, it's a great question. I, I'd like to, I guess I can do that with three, three different stories that all point to the same thing. It, the idea of talking about automation and the term intelligent automation, and what intelligent automation means is using the automation tools that are available, the software automation tools, or in some cases, the hardware automation tools, using them in a way that maximizes the outcome for the stakeholders in the business. That's what the term noble automation is all about. So I was doing intelligent automation. I was the intelligent automation lead in Northern Europe from about 2015 to 2019. And as a result of that, I was selling and proposing these projects to a variety of different clients. And what I saw, I'll give you three little vignettes. One was the CFO of a large company in Denmark stood up in front of his company and he brought his whole finance team together. And he said, with a you know, big stack of materials at the front of the podium, and he said, before I get into the presentation, I want to tell you all how excited I am about this automation stuff we're doing. And 50% of you will not work here in two years. And then he went on with the presentation, right? <laughs> Inspiring, inspiring. Yeah. And the joke I always say is, you know, the, everyone went to LinkedIn and who quits the company first is the best employee. So you know, you're, you're stuck with the dregs of the company after that. And he was interviewed the next day by the national press about that comment. And he stuck to it. He, he said, well, that's what's going to happen. So that was one example. Another example, um, I was involved in a consulting project in the beginning phase of this that was taken over by some of my peers. And they, they tried to force this very large automation project down a client's throat. When I say large, it was a $20 million project. Mm -hmm. And the incentives of the, of the people were all out of whack. They were doing things for their own benefits, et cetera. 
They were forcing things into the client environment and it, it ended like this. The automation team showed up in Spain and said, well, we're here to help you take out 50% of your workforce and all the managers on site were paid for the size of their team. They're all rewarded for having a large team, right? Mm -hmm. So the consulting team shows up and says, let's get rid of it. And of course the whole project was a complete failure. I was not involved in that portion of it, fortunately. But because I had been so involved up front, I just thought this is so painful. Then another example, this is a positive one, is after I had seen a bunch of these things go wrong, I worked with a, cl a client, young client. It reminded me of, you know, kind of my much earlier days, but young guy had this operations role and he had a very visionary CEO. So this young guy and the CEO, and I tell the story in the book, the young guy and the CEO meet, literally meet in the building and they know the company's under immense pressure. And the young guy thinks he can do something with this intelligent automation stuff. He doesn't really know what it is, but he's pinned in the elevator with the CEO. And he says, well, I have an idea. And the CEO says, give me a plan in 30 days. And I happened to be in Stockholm working at the time when this takes place. And he called us and said, you know, what can we do? So I sat in with a month and worked with him. And as a result of that project, which was exactly unlike the other projects I just described, the, the leadership team, the HR people, the CEO, the HR leader, the operations people all came together in a way that they were able to implement these intelligent automation tools in a way that increased the innovation of the business, the motivation of the teams, and of course, the profit went up in the company. Mm -hmm. And they didn't fire everybody. Now, some people left because they, you know, they didn't like what the future was, but most of them, their jobs changed and shaped. And what I realize is that the principles of all that, both the failures and the success, that could be called something. And I called it noble automation uh, from noblesse oblige, right? How can the leaders of a company implement these exciting automation tools in a way that serves the, the customers and the, the employees and the colleagues and the executive team? And it's not perfect, but how do you serve as many of those stakeholders as possible? And that's how the business goes forward. And so when, when you compile enough horrible, horrible failures and some success stories together, it starts to become a pretty clear methodology and an approach. And, and that's what I did it. And Mark, you and I had talked um, earlier before we went live about an example. I was, I was driving through Belgium with my wife. This is about 2016 or 17. And we stopped at a McDonald's. And this is the first time I had seen a McDonald's with all the touch screens to order. And as soon as I saw him being, you know, an automation and a process guy, I said, this is how the Europeans deal with high labor rates. Mm. And so what that means is when something, when new technology gets introduced, how do you deal with the employees that you already have? How do you help them find a journey that allows them to be more human and do more interesting things and, and help the company grow. So that's the essence of the, the essence of the book and the approach was um, to, to put those factors, the technology and the leadership together to, to make the best possible outcome for people. And, and it's doable. It's doable because I've been involved in it. I've seen it. I've seen some heroic people do some great things. And I thought, um, so back to marketing your services with a book, why write a book? Because I've, you know, I've done a bunch of that in consulting, right? Well, because people want to know that you've codified what you've learned. They mm. want to know what it looks like, what it feels like. 
and they want to absorb that on the couch themselves or in the plane or whatever. And they want to know that you have a, a, enough credibility to your story to be able to engage you and to engage you either speaking or to engage you in consulting to come help them solve their problems. And you know that it's not a, it's not a dirty secret. It's just a quiet secret among authors, I think. And that is until you write the book, I don't think you really have formalized your approach yet. You mm. have the ideas and you practice the bits and pieces, right? But when you have to write it down, knowing someone, some editor is going to read it and say, what do you mean by that? Right? And then some client is going to say, chapter five, well, what in the world was that? That's why I think it's very powerful in writing a book, is to put it in writing and talk about what you're going to do. So that's how we got here today. Chris, when I went through your book, um... I, I think, uh, and I guess I would I would consider myself a mere mortal uh, when it comes to technology and automation. Your book is really less about robots and and uh, technology. It's more about the human side. It, it is, and to put it in a word, um, maybe two words, but I'll start with one. It's more about resistance. It's about overcoming resistance. And if you say, well, okay, we're going to overcome resistance. Well, why are people resisting? Well, they're resisting because they're afraid. Well, why are they afraid? Because you haven't informed them of what this stuff actually is. And adults don't like to stand up and look stupid. So why don't we make sure, right? So it's this cascading why, 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 right? Um, and then they're also afraid because they're, they're like that CFO who walked in the room and said 50% of you are going to leave. They're terrified that that people are going to clumsily fire people and not care about them, et cetera. So mm -hmm. if you can't overcome resistance, you're never going to be able to implement these wonderful things. And the best way to overcome resistance is to help humans be heroes, which is, that's a big rallying cry from my book, help humans be heroes in the age of automation. Oh, that's fascinating because uh, uh, as someone who is out and about buying things and using services, uh, uh, I'm sensing a lot of resistance. I mean, obviously we've got resistance inside an organization, but even the consumer resistance uh, to the, you know, now you go into McDonald's here, uh, as you shared in Europe, um, you go into a McDonald's now, and part of it I think was the pandemic, uh, but I don't think the pandemic caused any of this. I think it uh, possibly accelerated it, yeah. But you walk into a McDonald's, you're walking up to a, a kiosk in a screen and you're placing your order. Right. Um, uh, I was I recently rented a U-Haul van for a, a short uh, haul just an afternoon. And I walked in and, and everything had to be done on my smartphone. Um, so even the, the one attendant that was in this um, uh, rental center uh, said, give me your phone and let me help you navigate it online. And then he said, oh, by the way, uh, when you bring the van back, uh, you can check out uh, with the app. And of course, that just sort of scares the heck out of me um, when somebody says, well, you know, it, it's really easy. But then the kicker, Chris, was when he said, you know, Mark, if you get here before four o'clock, I'll, I'll help you check out on your phone. Um, but he said, there's going to come a day when 
if you don't check out yourself, and he gave me a little bit of a wink and a nod, we will charge you a $20 convenience fee um, for not using the app. And I thought, boy, uh, automation uh, and the acceleration of automation is here to stay. And it's, it's changing, I think, and maybe you can, um, uh, add some insider nuances. I mean, it's happening. It's coming fast. It is. And it's happening fast for very good reasons. And that is because if you, it, if you can't charge more for your products and services, but you have to pay people more for their time, or you can't, don't have access to the people that you need to have, it, it accelerates it even further. So I, I tell an, another story from a, an earlier time where I invited the executive assistant from my company out to dinner with my wife, myself, my wife, uh, mm -hmm. my EA and her husband. And she, she kind of avoided the dinner for a couple of invitations. And finally, she, she said, my husband is really not in a good state of mind. He's not gonna join us for dinner. And I said, oh, that's, that's kind of sad. What's up? Which was maybe too much to ask. And she said, he worked at a grocery store for 25 years. And he was paid a lot of money at a grocery store because grocery stores have union wages, et cetera. And mm -hmm. they fired him after 25 years. And the reason they fired him is because he wouldn't take less money, of course, for a year, but he didn't add to his skills. So as the self-checkout machines multiplied, his value to the company minimized. So instead of becoming an expert in European cheeses or an expert in wine or an expert, you know, something, right? because he'd been there long enough, right? Or he could have been the customer service, whatever. He just stagnated and he stayed in the same place and eventually they tapped him on the shoulder and away he went. And he was angry at the world. I'm sure he was probably mm -hmm. partly angry at himself because he had not figured out how to do that. So there's two sides to this. There's we, the person who might become outdated if we don't try to stay up to speed. And then there's the company. So if the company says, Hey, Mark and Chris have a great deal of skill that you, that takes 30 years to earn. You got to learn how to be good with people. You got to learn how to handle that soft stuff and do it well. Then they help us figure out whatever this new technology thing we're doing. Because those skills we've picked up up over 30 years, the emotional intelligence we have, you can't you just can't train that. It takes time to do it, right? So it's a balance, right? Of figuring out how do you take away the routine monotony of people and focus on the humanity, which is so hard to do well. It's so hard to give good customer service and to care about the people that you're working with, et cetera, right? Mm -hmm. And that's what people want. It's easy to replace them with a robot. So I, I see it as that balance from two different sides. We as employees need to do things to stay up to speed and the companies need to help us um, use the balance of technology and humanity. One of my favorite phrases is no change, no change. And and if you stop and think about it, we all need to be, uh, you use the term chronic uh, resistance. Uh, we all need, as consumers, we need to get up and over the hurdle. Um, I guess if you have a, a flip, if you're still using a flip phone, you're in trouble. Uh, if you're, if you're not, not able to access the app, um, when, when you think about the leaders that you're working with and that you are speaking to, 
what is keeping them up at night? Well, you're you're on to the the the, the issue about the chronic resistance. That's clearly an, an issue, but it's I think it's two sided. They know they have to do these things to compete. As soon as you all went to an app, so did everybody else has to go to an app, right? As soon as the airlines got rid of all their check-in counter people and put in self-checking bags, everybody else has to do the, th the same thing. So the first thing is they have to adopt and innovate at, at full speed or they will simply be out of business, right? They won't have anything to do. And then the second piece is, damn it, why are these people all resisting what we're trying to do? Well, because you haven't probably helped them see that they have a future somewhere in life, which, by the way, may not be in your company. But that can be handled very well also, helping people find, there's a, there's a scene in the George Clooney movie, Up in the Air, where he spends all of his time going around laying people off, right? He's a consultant that lays people off. And he has this argument with his young colleague about, can you do this on, you know, virtually, or can you, do you have to meet the people face-to-face? -face? You know, Clooney's the gray-haired guy who says, look, you have to do this face-to-face. -face. So he sits down, and this guy he's laying off has been there 25 years. And he basically, the guy's like, what the hell do you want me to do? You just ruined my life. I'm, I'm, you know, my whole identity has been destroyed. And George Clooney looks at him and says, how much did the company pay you to give up your dreams? He says, what do you mean? He says, well, I see in your file that you used to volunteer in college at a French restaurant, a top tier French restaurant, rather than go get a, a job somewhere else that paid money. How much did the company pay you to give up your dreams of being a chef? Mm. And the guy pauses and he says, however much it was, $30,000 a year or something, right? And what Clooney did in that moment is to help that person see one journey is over, but another journey is going to start. And that's not easy to do. But if you do it well, as Roger Crone, the CEO of Lidos, who I interviewed for my book said, it is more important how you exit someone from a company than it is how you bring them in. Wow. Because everyone around you sees what happens. Do you treat that person as a human being or do you treat them, treat them like a box of pencils? Chris, fill in the blank uh, to this next statement. One thing that a wise leader does to help people overcome chronic resistance is blank. Build a level of comfort that they have a, a place in your future. Build a level of comfort. With that person. So Jane, we're going to change your job. Joe, we're gonna change your job. And by the way, you're going to be part of helping identify what that change is. Hmm. And you have a place here. We really want you to do. So I would give it two other points. You never walk into a room with 10 people and say as a leader, we want the 10 of you to figure out a new process that only needs five of you. <laughs> you, know? I mean, you know? And how many times I've seen that, I can't even count, right? And so the next thing you don't do is you don't tell people, we just want you to save time on this thing, but you don't give them something to do with their time. What's far more attractive is if you say, we have these really exciting projects and we don't have anybody to do these exciting projects. So can you guys figure out how to do what you're doing with fewer of you? So some of you can go do this exciting project. Mm. 
And then the people who want to do the same thing stay. The people who want to go do the exciting, but they see a vision. So the one thing a leader can do is help a person connect the dots between where they are now and what the next thing is. And that lowers the fear and it lowers the chronic resistance. And then everything comes out. People become magic after that. If, I, if, I'm, if I'm understanding what you're saying, uh, it's, it's sharing that message that, that the future looks bright. For you personally. For you personally. <laughs> right. um, that, that's got to do a lot to make somebody more, not only more comfortable in their position, but also maybe even recommit uh, to owning their roles and responsibilities uh, in a new way. Absolutely. And it's done far too rarely. Mm. And I just don't think that that enough leaders understand that. They're so, they're so worried about their pressures they're facing as well, right? They have to do what their boss wants them to do. But the more, the less they tell the people what's going on, the more they close down and the less creativity you get out of what they're capable mm -hmm. of doing. So in the, age, in the age of automation, what I'm trying to say is offload the horrible things that, that keep people from being wonderful humans, give those to the robots and then nurture and grow the humanity of the people you've got. Now, don't get me wrong. And I say this in the book pretty clearly, there are malcontents you should fire, period. <laughs> End of story. There are malcontents you should fire. And what you should absolutely not do is spend 80% of your time on those malcontents, mm. right? If you have malcontents, you got to get them out the door. The, the CHRO of Hasbro Toys, that was one of the points he made to me in the interview. He said, the first thing I do is find out if we have any of those people that are around, that are the pain in the ass, the mal get, get those out of the business. That's not the challenge. The challenge is the good people who there's going to be some changes and you need to help them see those changes. That one poison pill in the boardroom or on the poison, the poison pill on the team um, can yeah. do a lot of damage. And, and it does. It's, it's absolutely toxic. I, I interviewed for this book, I interviewed uh, 16 C-level leaders in depth. And they were CEOs, like the CEO of AIG, the, C, the CHRO of, of uh, um, Edward Jones Investing, and uh, wow. JP Morgan, and a bunch of really, I was amazed these people answered the phone. <laughs> it was great. But they all had very consistent themes like that, that you, you simply have to treat these people. You, you treat people like you wish you'd been treated, right? That's so easily said and so seldom done. And when you in introduce technology, you have to remember there's fear because, you know, they don't know how this stuff works. What's going to happen with it? Is this going to, am, am I going to feel stupid when you implement this? Am I going to look, am I going to look like Mark resisting the app at the U-Haul place? I have to be careful not to, not to do that. Um, by the way, the rest of the story is I came back to return the van. The attendant was gone. I was back before the time that he indicated and so I ended up needing to do it myself. And guess what? You made it. I made it. I figured it out. <laughs> believe it or not. Over your shoulder, Mark. He was but, making you a hero. Looking believe, over it, believe it or not, my confidence, you know, went up. It's like, hey, you know, I did it. Um, I guess we'll find out if I, you know, get the wrong bill uh, here in a week or two on my credit card. But but every everything went fine. And so I think... We, we, we all 
are learning that uh, these resistance hurdles uh, can be overcome. I want to switch gears, uh, Chris. Uh, first, I just want to take a moment and, and acknowledge you for the good work uh, that you are called you. and compelled to do. I, I think it's, it's a game changer, not only for teams at the highest levels in an organization that are, that are facing the, the challenge and the challenges of change, but uh, this notion of helping people be more comfortable uh, in their roles and responsibilities. Um, uh, a little birdie told me that uh, since your book has come out, you've been uh, speaking more. Uh, can true, you shine a little bit of a light on some of your speaking engagements and, and how has the book helped you uh, land some of these engagements? In reverse order, the book is absolutely essential because people want, if they don't know you personally, if they haven't seen you speak before, you haven't been a consulting client or something with them, they, they need something, you know, they'll go look at your resume, but what is your, you know, that's whatever, right? They really want to know you have something to talk about. So the book is huge. So the first couple of speaking engagements I got were, um, I, you know, I had done some of this before in consulting. So I had some videos of earlier presentations, but you know, you find an audience and you shape your message to suit that, you know, to speak to that industry or whatever. And I think eagerness is how I got the first couple of speaking engagements, just, you know, to say, you want me to talk at what time, anytime, any place, you know, should I bring the, you know, canapes with me when I come to the party? And then someone in the room hears you and says something to someone else. And then it's a little easier the next time, right? A little easier the next time. And then you, and I've got some really great advice as a result of this. You know, you reach out to people who've been public speakers before and consult. And I'm, I'm a speaker, yes, but I, I really, I have to do kind of both rails. I want to do the speaking and the consulting so that I'm there to help, you know, solve mm -hmm. the, the problems. Um, and then once the wheels start to spin, and there's one of these emails I got was someone who asked me to, to speak for free. And I said, well, I don't speak for free, but I will waive my fee if the audience is right, <laughs> which is great, right? And when the audience was right, I of course waived my fee. And then I did several other things on top of that, which then started to turn into speaking engagements. And then, you know, you prove to them, right? That, that you're not gonna embarrass them. They've arranged an event and they don't want a monkey on the stage. They want someone who can, you know, can sure. be compelling and, and you, you prove that that makes sense. And then more people start to do it. And then recently I, I gave a, a talk to 75 CEOs and CIOs from all around the world virtually, which I couldn't even believe happened. And it was fantastic. They were great. They were engaged. You know, this virtual stuff's still kind of weird for everybody, but they were engaged. They asked a lot of questions. Some of them showed up in, in their workout gear, but you know, that's just, just the way it goes. Well, the, the pandemic has opened up more opportunities virtually via Zoom and Teams and, and different platforms. And so I guess we're seeing it. We're seeing it right now. I'm not sure we would be doing this podcast, video podcast uh, two years ago uh, right. had it not happened. So um, the rate of uh, acceleration uh, and how it's changing everyday lives for you and me and our audience members is nothing uh, short of astounding. And um, I think that in some of these presentations, you are selling more books 
Well, there's there's no doubt about that. You, the first presentation I did was at a big trade show, which was amazing. It was actually face to face in the in the big trade show, and I showed up with you know as many books as you can stick in a briefcase right here in a in a suitcase, and you know you, as a new author you you stand there and you stare at the stack of books. And you hope it will mysteriously disappear. You know, you'll sell them or you know, whatever you have to do, right? Mm -hmm. And they did. And 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 the the difference between the interest in your books before you talk and after you talk is like night and day. It's like night and day. Right? Yeah, I mean, because then they 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 either run because they have want to have nothing to do with you, or they say, hey, something that person said was you know really interesting. I, and then you really know when they ask you to sign it, you say, well, they something about that message must have been good. <laughs> Chris, um, two two questions, uh, and then I think that you have a gift uh, for our, our listeners and viewers. But I do. Um, when you go back in time, uh, there 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 came a day, and you your career everything led you up to this particular day when you said, "I want to speak more. I want to write a book." I want to do more consulting assignments. Mm -hmm. When you look back in your rearview mirror and you think about that day, what, what has surprised you the most on this book and speaking journey? It's, I kind of feel like, and I don't think I'm the only person at all who feels this way, you tap into a level of thought and commitment that you probably always had but weren't doing. Mm. In my case, I was in really big companies, right? I was in Accenture and Deloitte and General Electric and the U.S. Navy before that. And I always knew I had a passion for this stuff. And every once in a while, I got to demonstrate it right in front of a training room or a trade conference or something. But as soon as I went all in, as Darren LaCroix would say, as soon as I went all in on this subject, you realize how much of it is in that vein. It's like hitting a vein of gold, but instead of it being gold, it's like, this is what you really want to do and can do. At least that's how it felt for me. But of course, it also took many years before I felt like I, I knew what I, I had something to say, right? That's the risk is that you need to have something to say that people really will benefit from. And then there was a, there was a, an actual evening, one night when I crossed the Rubicon and I'm never going back. So, mm. well, all of us have a runway to lift off. And there's a runway to that evening or that moment of time when you cross the line and forever your life has changed and the trajectory uh, of your career is, is forever altered uh, in a positive way. Um, if you could go back to you on that specific evening, and I know you remember it like it was yesterday, oh, yeah. but, but if you could go back to that evening and give, knowing what you know now, if you could give yourself a piece of advice, what would that piece of advice be that you would give yourself? That is a fantastic question. And you did not tell me or no, had no idea you would ask that question. So I can tell you exactly what that would be. 
the night that I realized I needed to do this for a living, I gave a presentation to about 500 colleagues in, a, in consulting, in a big consulting business. And about 50 of those people, that sounds like an exaggeration, but I promise I'm not exaggerating. Over a five hour long cocktail party and dinner with 500 people, I had 50 people come up to me and one way or another said, what the hell are you doing doing this and not out on stages being a professional speaker? Mm. And they were Danish, so they said it a little differently than that, but right. And the thing I wish I could tell myself then was that is the notice. Stop worrying about the fact that you're going to go do something else, but because it's, you feel great at that when you make that decision, right? But then you have to deal with some of the friction of leaving. <laughs> and I spent way too much time thinking about that friction, right? Either go on the journey or don't go on the journey. And I knew as clear as if someone, you know, it's that old joke about the preacher in the rain and finally he's hanging off the, the, cha the chapel and the helicopter comes and he refuses the helicopter. He goes to heaven and he says to God, God, where were you? I was your servant all these years. And God says, look, I sent you a canoe, a rowboat, an SUV and a helicopter, sure. <laughs> right? I grab it and go. That's what I, I think I should have just grabbed it and gone. Not not to be rude to anybody, but I knew that night it was as clear as, as day to, to go do it. Neat. Um, Chris, would you just describe, I think you are uh, open to sharing a gift with our viewers and listeners. Uh, well, the ultimate gift, because I didn't, I didn't have like a little short summary thing. So I would be happy to give away 51 gifts on this call. 51 mm -hmm. gifts. 50 of those gifts will be an electronic copy of my book mailed to people who send me an email at chris at nobleautomationnow.com, chris at nobleautomationnow.com. And the 51st gift is a box of steak knives, ah. which Henry always <laughs> says. <laughs> and they're cheap steak knives. So I suggest you be one of the first, first 50 people. Ah, oh, that's neat. Um, Chris, thank you so much for uh, sharing with us and you've given us some tremendous insight. Is there one more pearl of wisdom or one more tip that we haven't uh, talked about uh, that you think our uh, listeners or viewers would appreciate hearing? The call to adventure is ever present. That call to adventure is the thing that you keep hearing and you keep avoiding and that you should pick up the phone, as Joseph Campbell would say, answer that phone and go on your next hero's journey. Whether it's in intelligent automation or anything else, take that next hero's journey. Thank you, Chris. Thank, Thank you, you, Mark. For being with us. And <clears throat> my name is Mark LeBlanc of Indie Books International. Thank you so much for joining us uh, for this special episode of Marketing with a Book. And that's a wrap.